0: Welcome to The Queer Queue. Today in our episode, we have with us an amazing filmmaker, documentarian filmmaker, Jules Roskam. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jules. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. And so, you know, looking through your work, you know, we were researching um, it showed that you've also worked on programs like DAG TV um, right before your uh, debut feature film Transparent in 2005. And so what we kind of want to start off by with this episode is kind of knowing what your creative journey was like as an artist and what were some of the memorable milestones in your creative career that shaped you as the artists you are today?
1: Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> There's a, there's a lot of milestones I've been, you know, working as an artist for like tw- uh, 20 years. So, um, I mean, Doug TV was a really pivotal moment, actually, that completely changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I was originally trained as a painter, and ever since I was a little kid, like, that is, I had, like, eye on the prize. That's what I thought I was going to do my whole, when I, I don't know, when I grew up. Um, and then... I don't know, I graduated college and suddenly realized uh, as an introvert trying to make it, quote unquote, as a painter was going to be quite difficult um, because of, at that time anyways, you know, you had to like show up at a gallery with your slides and just sort of hope someone was gonna like look at them. Um, And then there was the financial piece where I just like didn't have space, didn't have money for materials, et cetera. Um, And I ended up moving to San Francisco for a year um, partially because I had been it was sort of clear to me in the last year of college that I was trans and I I mean I I knew before then but I was sort of like ready to kind of do something about it I guess Um, and so I had a fantasy about moving to San Francisco and you know I think it's a fantasy that a lot of people at least in my generation shared like it was going to be some perfect trans mecca Um, and I went there and I hated it Um, but I'll just put that to the side (laughs) for now but I ended up working actually at Frameline um, in not for the film festival but for the distribution arm of of them of Frameline Um, and my boss uh, was originally from New York and basically I wanted to get the heck out of um, San Francisco back to the east coast and she helped me get a job in in video production um, uh, because like I had learned, I did a semester abroad in college. I'd learned like Final Cut Pro had just come out that year. It was like 1999 or something. Um, I learned it. I found out I was like really good at the technology. I really liked it, but it just never occurred to me as like a path, uh, a career path. So anyways, I got into video editing. That was sort of my entry into filmmaking. But I didn't think about making my own stuff. Um, And then to make a very long story about Big TV Short, we'll just say I stumbled upon it one day. um, And because I lived in the same neighborhood that it was in and started volunteering there. And then very quickly after that became the executive producer and briefly was the interim executive director. and while I was there, I was like, I want to make a, I want to make a film. <laughs> like I was there, I was like teaching people how to make films. I was putting our show together through editing, and then I had an idea for a film. And that's what, um, how I, how I was able to make transparent is they lent me all the equipment to make it. Um, and actually, one of the people I worked with there, who was senior to me, um, uh, volunteered to sort of help pro- to co-produce the film. So um, I don't know if I would have ended up... um, Oh, and then I made that film and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, And teaching there, I was like, oh, I also really like teaching. And so um, uh, that sort of several years later ended up, you know, late. late, um, I ended up on the path of being a filmmaker and film professor. I think like, I mean, making my first film and having it do well, like literally having had no training and having kind of no idea what I was doing um, was pretty cool. Um, and I traveled all over the world screening the film and um, there was at that time, like really nothing out like it. Um, and really like one, only one other feature film about trans masculine people. Uh, it was very cool to sort of be on the vanguard of of that kind of representation. Um, and my second feature also did really well. And that was, I remember I it premiered at the well, what what's now called the BFI Flare um Film Festival in London. And it was it premiered to like a, a in one of their big theaters to a sold-out audience. And it was just a really positive response. And I remember just feeling really happy that um that the people in my community were like excited about the film and they felt good about it. And they felt like it filled holes in representation and also was like a, a good piece of art. And so I, you know, that was really, really satisfying. Um, and then my last feature, Paternal Rights um, premiering at MoMA was also a, a goal.
2: Well, you know, it's always incredible to hear somebody's story about, you know, how they ended up becoming a filmmaker because we go down through so many different avenues. And it's just, it's always inspiring to be able to hear about just the success and the joy of being able to put that art out there and for it to be received, you know, just by the community, just with so much love and admiration. Um, so you know talking about transparent you know and that experience you know was the initial you know you said that you wanted to you were teaching about film and so you wanted to create your own film so what initially what was that spark that got you to choose transparent was it that you did see this need for trans masculine representation in media because like you said there isn't hardly any representation at all. Um, So, you know, especially at that time. And then what were some of the things that you really enjoyed creating that documentary? Like, was there anything that, you know, was really life-changing when creating it?
1: Yeah. um, So in terms of like the spark, like how did I, like why was that the film I made? Um, There's a, a couple really clear reasons. So one of the things, I didn't like about, one of the many things I didn't like about San Francisco. I don't mean to throw so much shade on San Francisco. It's fun to visit. I do not want to live there. Um, uh, But um, one of the things I really disliked about it is at the time, um, and so this was 2001, I moved there. Um, At the time it was like super, the queer community I had access to anyways was really, Well, first of all, it was like deeply racially segregated, um, but also um, really like fell along hard, along butch and femme lines. Like you were butch or you were femme. And if you were one or the other, you pair, if you were butch, you paired with someone who was femme and vice versa. Um, I mean, I remember I worked you know, at a restaurant in there and I worked with a a femme uh, queer woman and uh, she was like trying to, figure out like what my type was and I was like I don't really have a type like I'm attracted to all different people and she was like well just you know tell me the next time someone comes in who you're attracted to so just so happened the next person who came in that I thought was attractive was like this hot butch and she was horrified when I told her that and she actually told me she was like in a group of she had a name I'm not going to go into it but like of like femmes against butch on butch basically um And I was like, this is so deep and twisted. Like, I don't even know what to do with this. Um, So I was like in this mindset of like thinking about butch femme and how rigid queer community was being about gender and attraction and all of these things and how it was just sort of replicating um, the same kind of rigidity within heteronormative culture. And so I was thinking a lot about gender and a lot about like what makes us prone towards these binaries. Um, And then also I, you know, was coming out as trans um, and considering like what that meant for parenthood, um, for me as a parent, like, and I, and I thought like, there was no information about like if you take hormones, like, could I have a kid? Like, like, could I give birth? I wasn't really necessarily interested in giving birth, but I, I was sort of like trying to think through these big things as like a 22 year old with no resources. Um, and so, I th- so it was sort of when I was thinking about parenthood and then also thinking about gender, I was like, what is the most gendered thing you can do? It's be pregnant. Like, if you're pregnant in our culture, like, there's so much pressure on women to be be mothers and also to be birth parents. Um, And it's so gendering. Um, And then I was, so then I was like, I don't know, kind of light bulb went off. And I was like, I can't be the only transmasculine person who's ever wondered about parenthood. Um, And um, so I was like, there must be trans men are parents Um, and so you know this is still early it's like 2003 or two I started doing research and so there the internet was not what it is today even then uh, like at all Um, like I had just gotten an email address like the year before Um, and so I went online and just googled like every single I don't I don't even know if google existed then whatever I looked I searched for every single LGBT support group or anything I could find. And I emailed and some I wrote letters to just saying, like, I'm looking to make a film about this. Like, could you share this with your constituents? And I just, like, tried to, like, it was, like, a lot of word of mouth and a lot of that kind of outreach. It was also, I was living in New York at the time. I was putting flyers up, like, in places where I knew queer, at least queer people, when um, the responses started pouring in. And I was like, so that honestly was like a life changing moment where I was like, trans men do exist. Um, And like everywhere. Um, Because I mean, it was also like, one of the things I really wanted to do with that film actually was to disrupt some of the myths around like trans people only exist in cities. Trans people all like, um, were like, Uh, went to small liberal arts colleges and like were gender studies majors and like you know like all of this sort of stuff and it's like most of the men in that film are from like working class like and live in rural areas like so I um that was super important to me um and it was just like really affirming um to know that there were trans men who are older than me who are out there um and then going on the road and just meeting them was amazing. Um, And also, I mean, one of the things I love about uh, documentary filmmaking or filmmaking of of any kind, at least the way I approach it, is the possibility for intimacy. Like it's really intimate for someone to share their life with you. And at that time, it was dangerous for some of them to be out as as trans on screen. And um, they didn't know what the consequences were gonna be. at that time, your kids could get taken away from you. Like, you know, so seeing people sort of like take that risk for the benefit of others was also really moving. Um, And I just feel extremely lucky that um, I was able to do that and meet with these people. And it just, it also helped me come out and, you know, come into myself as a trans person.
0: I really love Transparent. And I love that you talk about disrupting Um, that narrative of, you know, trans masculinity and about what people think about parenthood as well, because this was a light that not a lot of people saw. And because when you think about family and parenting, everyone keeps getting this heteronormative, you know, image of just like a cis man, cis woman, but more on disrupting that trans narrative, your next experimental uh, future documentary against a trans narrative was also um, disrupting those myths. It was experimental and it was a provocative piece that looked at, you know, trans masculinity and gender politics. You know, and you intermix like stage performances and confessional pieces and even I think like uh, poetry into that, um, into this uh, against a trans narrative. So, can you kind of discuss like the difference between from moving from transparent to against a narrative and what, how more that intimacy level, level how more was that kind of notched up for this second feature and what it meant to you yeah yeah totally um
1: so I mean one thing I'll say that's a huge difference between the two films is I wanted transparent to be experimental because that's just that's my interest is also in disrupting like um normative narratives that that documentary film in general, like the the structure of documentary um, uses. But at the time I was like, I decided against that because because like almost no one knew that trans men existed. The idea of like just getting people to wrap their mind around the fact that A, we exist and we could have birthed children was like mind-blowing to so many people that I was like, if I also make it experimental, like no one's going to watch it. And that would be a disservice to the men in the film who were sharing their stories. So anyways, that is like a straightforward doc, um, because I think at the time it just had to be. Um, And so I made, I guess, a trans narrative when I decided... Um, that I like wanted to be a filmmaker, and so I went and got my MFA in filmmaking, and that was like my thesis film. Um, and so I came to it actually because when I was touring with Transparent, Transparent's a short; it's a short feature, 60 minutes. So it would often get paired with a, a very short uh, um, doc, uh, like a you know 10 or 10 or less minute doc. And I just, as I was touring with Transparent for like a year and a half, I just noticed that the same exact narrative was getting repeated in these autobiographical documentaries with, by tra- that were being made by men, And I noticed that they were all white. They were pretty much all middle-class. They all were straight identified and wanted medical intervention. And I was like, hmm. I know, you know, in in real life, trans people who a lot lot of trans people, and there are way more narratives than that. So why is this one getting repeated over and over and over again? And, and, and I knew some of the people in those films and that their lived experiences were more nuanced than what they were saying. So I was like, in a, in a moment of creative expression, self-expression, why are these nuances being lost? And why is this narrative getting repeated in the same way? And, and then I was actually at the same time was uh, or like when I got to grad school, I guess, I was invited to give a kind of keynote address um, at this uh, colloquium uh, at Northwestern. And so I decided to write about sort of the state of trans representation and to think through more like this idea about this narrative. Um, and basically the like to to maybe oversimplify my, my presentation, the, the conclusion I came to was at that time, you really could not get access to anything unless you followed the Harry Benjamin standards of care. And that required you to, to repeat a very specific narrative that included being straight um, and um, like wanting medical intervention and not having any ambiguity around your gender. Like you could not be genderqueer you had to be like, I'm a man. I'm trapped in a woman's body, like a very talk show kind of model of of trans identity. Um, And so I was like, oh, we've been repeating this lie to gatekeepers. And even though we know we're lying in that moment, you tell a lie over and over again and I think it impacts your psyche. And so I was like, oh, now we're lying to each other about this. Um, and that seemed really deep and, and troubling. So anyways, I, I, I made this, I wrote this paper and did this presentation, but I was like, ultimately oh, I'm a filmmaker, so now I need to, I need to respond. I need to like, do something that's different that disrupts that narrative. I was also, you know, I was in grad school, I was like, reading a lot of theory and I was really influenced a lot at that time by um, the filmmaker and theorist Chintu Minha. Um, as well as uh, Michel Foucault and I was thinking a lot about you know Foucault talks about how essentially like how we have to make ourselves an object of possible knowledge like which is to say like we have to be readable um for other people to like bestow us with our humanity and so I was just thinking about that imperative to be legible um and thinking about um like actually obviously how way more complex we are and also how damaging it is to make yourself legible within mainstream culture because that means you it requires you to use language that they use and understand and that is damaging. Um and so anyway so yeah against your trans narrative sort of tries to unpack some of that and also it also really tries to situate transness within a history of feminism and larger queer community because i'm like these things all intersect trans people are not just like hanging out over here like totally dislocated from like feminist concerns and from queer history um and so that's where those sort of like intergenerational um, dialogues start to happen in the film and start to kind of like think through trans in relationship to these other things Um, and as I said before I you know I really wanted to think about or have audiences think about the form of documentary and how and why it is we believe something to be true when we believe it to be true Um, And so there's all of these moments in the film that are like, oh, you think this is real? It's not real. Or you thought that wasn't real? It is real. You know, it's just this sort of like um, the troubling of the truth.
2: Yeah, I think that's something that we really come up against within the queer community, specifically for um, anyone who is queer in their gender identity, is that constantly having to explain your, um, explain your identity, explain your community, explain, um, and really disrupt the narratives of what is being told, because there is so much gatekeeping in the history that's told. So many erased narratives, so many misinformation that is just used to marginalize a group of people. Um, so, you know, being able to disrupt those beliefs in film, I think it's, It's something that, you know, we see throughout your work, it's something that, you know, going against kind of what is the mainstream and what is common within, um, you know, the mainstream way of thinking, especially, you know, the cishet part of the queer community, you know, there's a lot of disrupting that has to be done, and you know, just going on to something else in your work that is very much disruptive and very much against the grain is thick relations. You know, it's it's described as an anti-rom-com, um, you know, because it subverts romantic tropes and it discusses chosen family, which is something that is a very important concept, um, especially today. And, you know, um, it embraces, logic of love alliance and identification so you know um besides pushing up against these beliefs of what family can be and what love can be you know what really drew you to create thick relations and um you know what was the process like making it
1: yeah that film was really challenging actually to make um what drew me to making it was I mean for me it's kind of like a it's a love letter to my chosen family um so I made it after moving away from Chicago after grad school um even though I really did not want to leave and a few years later I was just thinking about how special that community I was a, Part of and that my fam- my family were everyone let, was stayed behind except me, um, and how much uh, loss there was in that, and how loss is this um, catalyzing moment in our lives, both for good and bad. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about loss and how that impacts us, and how relationships always reconfigure around loss. Um, And so like you have five people in a family unit, like what happens when you lose one member? Like how does the family sort of reconfigure and move and go on or go forward? Um, And I was also really interested in um, Augusto Boal's Theater of the Oppressed, which it uses this model um, uh, again to oversimplify. It's essentially like based on the idea that Um, theater can be transformational and particularly that um, oppression we've experienced or um, violence we've experienced can be healed through particular acts, theatrical acts. So like if I experienced, um, if I was a victim of a hate crime, for instance, like I, you know, we might create a scene in which I'm actually the perpetrator in that and someone else plays me and I get to like Have power, also be in the literal place of the perpetrator to sort of like understand that more, and I could also play the victim again and and not get and get out of the situation safely, right? So it's like how and that 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 idea is like that we're transformed and that transforms us in our real life. So I was like, what if we did that in film? And so I essentially I engaged a select number of people from my community. I mean, I, I sort of like you know, invited a bunch of people and said like, this is going to be time intensive. It's going to be, and this is how it's going to unfold. So you can, you know, I love for you all to participate, but I know probably you can't. And so a certain number of people opted in. And for about a year from a distance, I had people, um, I mean, we had one sort of in-person brainstorming session about like what part, what people like wanted to bring into the screen, onto the screen about their lives and our experiences together. And then with my co-writer, I we developed sort of some, mostly like writing exercises for them to do, Where essentially each person was gonna play a version of themselves. And we invited them to like really think about something about themselves that they weren't yet, but wanted to be. Um, so to like make a version of themselves that was sort of um, aspirational. Again, thinking, doing that might actually impact their real lives. And so we engaged them in a process over the course of a year of developing their characters. Um, And then once we had these characters that were, you know, based on them, and we had a sort of series of things that might happen, um, we developed, um, I wouldn't say a script, Um, I would say like a score, like taking from sort of like improvisational dance, like, You know, so for like an 85 minute film, normally you'd have something like an 85 page script. Um, And we had a 15 page score that was basically like this character and this character are in this location. They can talk about whatever they want, but they also have to talk about this one thing or, you know, so there was, there wasn't really a plot. Well, A, I just don't give a shit about plots. Um, They're not the thing that compels me about film. Um, Film is a language and an art, and it can do lots more than just tell a story that has plot points. Um, And so it's sort of like, what happens when you let go of plot? And so we basically were like, okay, someone disappears at the beginning of the film, but we never talk about what happens to them. So that's the sort of catalyzing loss that happens. And then we stay with the like four remaining, or the three sort of remaining family members and watch them begin to sort of incorporate a new person kind of into the family, but not in any sort of dramatic way. Um, It really also just like kind of focuses on the banality of life. It's like, We see people in their homes and they're like cooking breakfast or they're sorting their mail or they're what, you know, like whatever. Um, And we also like, we never really know people's names. We don't know people's genders. We don't actually know the specifics of people's relationships. Um, None of that gets spoken out loud. And that's the other thing. And I think that's how it's like, gets described as this like anti-rom-com or like, because it's like, you don't, no one gets the girl in the end right like there's no there's no like um two characters who you're really like rooting to get to for to get together because you're also like i don't know are those people already together who's sleeping with who like what are exactly the relationships all you see is intimacy and in varying forms and and as it sort of shifts and then like so there's this structure a loose structure we used and then when i got there to actually shoot the film everyone, like they had started a queer choir. And so that was like a really important thing in their lives. And they wanted to incorporate it in the film. And I initially was like, no, that's cheesy. I don't want to include that. Um, And then I was like, okay, if this is really collaborative which is what I wanted it to be, I didn't want to be in full control of it. I was like, this is what's important to them. The film is about them. It's not just about me. So I was like, okay, like the queer choir is in. Um, and that that actually becomes like the main structuring thing is just sort of watching the choir develop, and then they have a big um, their first like live performance, which was real, and we like filmed it. And so it it toggles between fiction and nonfiction. So there are these acted acted sort of scripted moments, and then there's like just real life unfolding, and they you really can't tell the difference between uh, between them. Um, and you know it was challenging because real shit came up for people (laughs) like they were really trying to heal certain things in themselves and their relationships and at least for some of them I know that it that those things happened like relationships got healed people changed I mean one of the characters was like I want my character to be nice because I don't I'm not that nice and I was like yeah you aren't that nice (laughs) like let's give it a try um and he you know uh, by his own reports he felt like actually afterwards like he was able to find some more space in himself toward incorporating that um I don't know in towards being nicer um so there was a lot of intensity um and uh in making the film and I will say actually it's it's I don't totally feel satisfied with the with the end product but I feel satisfied with the process. Um and the process ultimately is more important to me. Um but I have very mixed feelings about the film because I I feel like I not I feel like I re- I did release it before I felt really good about it cuz I also it was like emotionally very challenging for me to make and I just needed to be done with it at some point.
0: No yeah, I definitely understand that. I kind of see this kind of theme of intimacy and that you kind of embed into your documentary work. And I think that um, kind of stays true to your next uh, uh, documentary film, Paternal Rights, which I think is a more of a personal kind of essay film. And I think I read somewhere that you kind of drew inspirations from like Jenny Olson or like Marlon Riggs, uh, kind of their style. And so kind of talk us about those influences and embedding it into Paternal Rights. And what was it like, you know, making such a personal film like Paternal Rights that differed um, from the three documentaries? Because I think this one uh, was really more of an, on a, n- another intimate level than the other three, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, so Paternal Rights, yeah, is definitely different um, than my other films, though I think there are some through lines, um, but I mean, one I'll say it's, I think it's my best film. Um, I'm the most proud of that, that film, uh, artistically. Um, and it's also, I think it was the first film I made that I didn't feel like I had to compromise my artistic vision because I didn't have money to make it or, you know, whatever. I mean, even though I didn't really have money to make that film either, but I still somehow managed um, to get enough to make it to the, uh, at the level that I wanted. And yeah, I mean, Marlon Riggs, his film Tongues Untied is the film that made me want to make films. Um, uh, Like, it's or his that Tons and Tide was the first documentary I saw that wasn't like a straightforward mainstream documentary and I was like oh this is what documentaries could look like and it kind of just like blew my mind um and then I I've been a fan of Jenny Olsen's work for quite some time um and we actually know each other and and uh have a relationship um and so that's also been very rewarding um getting to know her somewhat uh personally um so yeah i was thinking uh, definitely about both of them um and i think the essay the essay film format does the things that i am drawn to in nonfiction film um and it it also like off, not always, but it's, I, there's, they're often personal. Um, and so it really like finds a way to um, get very personal, but also sort of zoom out in this way um, that allows for other connections to be made. Um, and I really appreciate the sort of um, associative element that a lot of um, essay films have, because I think that's how memory works. And that's how, Thought processes work, and that's how we work as humans in general. Um, And so, I think it just allows for um, more nuance to show up. And making that film, I mean, was extremely challenging. Um, And it was not the film I thought I was making. Um, And had I known what the film was actually going to end up being about, I don't think I would have set out to make it. I never intended to make a film about my childhood abuse. Like I just was not interested in that. I thought I was making a film about my, about my dad. Um, and also like when I first started it, it was also like there were much bigger themes. Like it was also about whiteness and masculinity and which is not to say those things aren't there. But, and it was also like, I was. T- it was also about the history of the interstate highway system and how that destroyed certain communities in this country. And it was like about a lot of other things. And. Um, actually for years, I kept trying to like force it to be about those things. Um, And finally, I just had enough people saying to me like, I mean, these things are interesting, but it's not working. Um, And I think ultimately I realized, even though I was genuinely interested in those other things and wanted to draw those connections, I think I was also trying to avoid the film just being about my trauma. Um, and I was like, trying to bury it in these like intellectual um historical, um other kind of stories. Um, and so I finally let that go, and then the film actually was able to become what it needed to become. Um, but it was mixed in terms it had mixed results in terms of i I wanted to do it because i mean, when i when i finished the film and showed it to my parents before, you know, I you know I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I wanted their blessing, um, but I did want, um, I did want to show it to them before I said like, it's signed, sealed and delivered and that's it. So I showed, you know, after I showed it to them, um, one of the things my mom said to me was like, couldn't you have waited to make this film until after we were dead? And my response was, No, because if I waited to make it until after you were dead, then that doesn't actually give us the opportunity to change our relationships. And like, that is what I wanted was change Um, and transformation. Um, And I wanted that for myself and for my brother and for them. And and there were many transformations that happened um, and things that I didn't think were possible. Um, And You know, did they all stick? Uh, No. Um, Did they all transform and we have a, you know, a a perfect family? Absolutely not. Um, Did bad things also happen or difficult things? Yes. Um, So it was really challenging in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, it was a really important film for me to make um, because it also kind of forced me to process things that I thought I had processed and was sort of OK with. Um, but I think this is the thing about trauma is like it just sort of always unfolds in these different levels. And you think you've dealt with it. And then some other years later, some other part of it emerges and you're like, oh, there's there's still a lot there. Um, so it was like a, an excavation. I think that um, every family has secrets, but secrets like are really painful and damaging. Um, and so even though it's painful to get them out in the open, um, I think that uh, ultimately it's for the best. Um, and the reality is it certainly with my father, like none of those conversations would have happened without the film. Like, I think this is, you know, the thing that is hard to maybe understand, but like we have, we don't have a relationship outside of that. Like those were the longest conversations we have ever had in my entire life. Um, and so. Had I not made the film, like none of that would have happened. Um, and I think we do have a better relationship now.
2: Thank you, honestly, for sharing that because I know we know how personal that paternal rights is for you and for your family, and also for so many other people. You know, so it's it's great that you were able to share that with so many people and share that with us. So thank you so much. Um, I think as we wrap up, you know, we definitely love to ask a lot of the filmmakers that we talk to, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, trans and queer artists who are looking to create film? And, you know, what do we have to look forward to from you next?
1: I'm terrible at these advice questions. I really should get better at them because I get asked often. Um, I mean, I'm really good at giving advice on an individual level, but these sort of like What to tell everyone? I don't know. All I can say is, like, um, is that uh, we need you. We need your what you have to say, Um, and we need more queer and trans people making work of every kind. um, And do what you need to do to get it made. Um, And uh, it. All I can say is, it's going to be really fucking hard probably. Um, And in all ways, and if you can be resilient in the face of that, I think it will be worth it and we all will be better off for it. So that's maybe what I'll say there. Um, And also feel free to reach out to me. Like I'm happy to talk uh, if I can help in any way. Um, Well, one thing related to that is this is a longer term vision. So this is like, maybe five to seven years from now, but I am actually working on creating um, a artist residency and mentorship program for trans artists. Um, And so I hope that that will be opening up, launching, et cetera, in five to seven years. So keep a lookout for that. And in the meantime, um, uh, so I'm working on my my, uh, latest feature um, experimental doc, called desire lines. Um, and this film also looks at something that you know is a, is a huge phenomenon in trans masculine community that has not been really talked about or represented on film, which is that so many or in my experience of of in trans masculine community over the last 20 years, that so often when trans men come out as trans, they they develop or are able to make space for attraction to other men. And so this film really explores uh, transmasculine sexuality. It sort of uh, looks at how desire changes and why it might change as gender presentation changes. Um, and then it sort of looks at that al- alongside. So it, that's part of it. And then it takes place actually like within a, the bathhouse. So it also looks at the bathhouse as a site of transformation and, um, and transmission. And so the the bathhouse becomes a place where we learn about history, queer history. We learn, we make community like where activism happens. So it's looking at that like during the HIV AIDS crisis and how the bathhouse was actually like a site of activism and a site where information about HIV was like first being disseminated and people were being tested. Um, And also as a critical site in, with a lot of the trans and cis men that I spoke to where they came to accept their bodies. And that was like really, and I was surprised to hear that. Um, and so that's how I ended up kind of turning toward bathhouses as this like critical place where um, desire emerges from. And I don't mean just sexual desire, right? Like desire is the thing that like, like it's our life force. Um, and so anyway, so it's really looking at um, kind of like queer trans masculinity um, and then the history of the bathhouse. Um, so that I'm in development on, and my projected date of release is 2024. Um, so, you know, it takes some years to make this, and it got derailed for the last year with COVID, of course. Um, so that's the main project I'm working on. And then I'm also co-editing a book, um, that is, uh, with, um, uh, uh, trans scholar and 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 performance uh, maker Jack Pryor, um, and it looks at it's about trans aesthetics. So it's like um, the the entire field of trans cultural production, um, and it's an it'll be an edited collection, um, which that will also probably be a couple of years from now. <laughs> but those yeah, those are the big projects that I'm I'm working on.